So according to the Gospel of Matthew, after his baptisms, Jesus spent time in the wilderness, a story that we'll read next month. And then after learning of the arrest of John the Baptist, he went to Galilee, specific to, specifically to the village of Capernaum, which became his home and the base from which he began his ministry. Now our English translation says that Jesus withdrew to Galilee after John's arrest, which implies that he was kind of running away. But rather than taking him out of danger, this move put him right in the middle of it, for the ruler of Galilee, Herod Antipas, was the one who had arrested John. Even if that were not the case, Galilee was not at all the most likely place for Jesus to launch his public career. First of all, like the rest of Israel, it was controlled by the Roman Empire. Second, it was far away from the seats of power in Jerusalem. And third, it had a lousy reputation. It did. Today's scripture contains a quote from the ninth chapter of Isaiah in which this area is called Galilee of the Gentiles and described as a place of darkness. Historically, conquests of this region by one empire of, after another had created a multi-ethnic blend of people who had little power or resources. In other words, Galilee was the backwater of Israel and its people were seen as second class, only a little more acceptable than Samaritans. Yet Jesus chose to situate himself in this region, to live among those who lived on the margins of society with the poor and the powerless. And so it is to them that he first offers the message that is at the heart of his ministry, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. We're used to hearing that phrase, right? Kingdom of heaven is pretty familiar to us, and so we don't realize how radical this statement was. For the only kingdom that counted then was the Roman Empire. To proclaim the presence of another kingdom, a rival empire, was to throw the gauntlet down right at the feet of the powers that be. But Jesus' message was more than a challenge to the Roman government and the Jewish religious establishment. It was the gospel, the good news, a proclamation of hope that told the people that God had not abandoned them and that the promises of God could be trusted. In that hope, Jesus called people to repent, to change the direction of their lives and to realign their actions and goals with those of God. In his commentary on his this passage, Troy Miller writes, in short, this is what Jesus has come for, to announce and usher in God's kingdom. Though it is not untrue to say that Jesus came to earth to die, it is more true to the gospel to say that he came first to live. He came to announce, to invite sinners into, to proclaim the demands of, and in the end, bring in God's kingdom. For this, he was killed. Though some of the very early Christians' creeds jumped directly from Jesus' birth to his death, the reason for which he lived must not be minimized. In fact, it can be rightly said that Jesus' death takes on its true significance only in connection with that which, for which he lived and proclaimed the kingdom of God. John the Baptist had preached this same message as he called people to prepare for the coming of the Messiah. 
Now the one for whom he waited was here, not just in proclaiming the message, but embodying it in his actions, revealing it in his words, shining light in the darkness and offering new life to those who took his message to heart. Among those who did were some fishermen. Two were the brothers Simon, called Peter, and Andrew, whom Jesus observes as they are casting their nets into the Sea of Galilee. Brothers, of course, are not enjoying a time of recreation together. Fishing is their livelihood. It provides food for their families and a product to sell in the marketplace, and they are probably fishermen because their father was a fisherman, and their grandfather was a fisherman, and maybe their great-grandfather was a fisherman. Certainly that is true for the other fishermen whom Jesus encounters. James and John were clearly in a part of the family business with their father Zebedee. Fishing is what these men did day in and day out. It was all that they knew or expected from life. Then Jesus showed up, calling to Simon, Peter, and Andrew, and then to James and John, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. And when they hear his call, these men drop their nets and leave their boats and an astonished Zebedee behind. And there's that question. What compelled these men to leave steady, solid professions and their families behind to follow Jesus with apparently no questions asked? As far as we know, they did not apply to be his disciples, which some young Jewish men would do to get their rabbinic instruction. They may not even have known who Jesus was. Whatever the reason, it is clear that there was something about Jesus that drew these men and others to him, something that made them not only want to listen to and watch him, but to participate in what he was doing. It is, writes Roger Neshoika, almost as if they had been waiting all their lives to hear this voice, to be issued this call, so that when it came, they dropped what they were doing. Reverend Jennifer Molan Kavesh offers another clue that makes sense to me. She writes, Jesus speaks to them in a language they'll understand and gives them a job they can do. They know how to fish. Which leads me to ask the other question. Why would Jesus choose these particular men with whom to be in relationships? What qualifications could they possibly have had? They weren't biblical scholars. They probably couldn't even read or write. They weren't wealthy or trained in public speaking or in medicine, all of which would have been very useful to Jesus. They were ordinary, rough-hewn men who worked hard to make a living. They knew how to fish. And maybe that's the key. These fishermen were not afraid of hard work. They were used to difficult working conditions, conditions that required both patience and persistence. They knew how to read the weather and the water, and they're used to working together to haul in a catch. Maybe, maybe they were more qualified than we think. Which leads me to suggest that maybe we, too, are more qualified than we think. We, too, might be the kind of people whom Jesus would call to be his disciples to follow him. After all, it seems that Jesus sought out ordinary, everyday people to carry his message of hope, people just like us. 
David Lowe points out that Andrew and Simon Peter, John and James probably have no idea what being fishers of people even means at this point in the story, but they do know that Jesus sees something in them, something of value and worth. They have no idea where they will go or what they will do, but they do know that Jesus is calling them to be his disciples and they trust that the rest will become clear in time. I think that is true for us as well. I think that Jesus sees something of value and worth in us, even if we don't know exactly what it means to be his disciple. And maybe if we understand that we are indeed valued and honored and loved, then we might also be able to hear and accept Jesus' call to follow him, trusting that over time we will learn what that means. And thank goodness we don't even have to know how to fish. <laughs> Jesus can and will use whatever skills, knowledge, and experience that we have to offer. As I told the children, he calls all kinds of people in all walks of life to be his partners in God's mission. I think I've told this story every time I've preached in this text, but I'm going to tell it again. So here's how it goes. After a sermon that equated evangelism with fishing, a woman in his congregation said to Reverend John Jewell, you know something, I hate fishing. And as for fishing for people, I don't have the kind of time available you talked about. Does Christ have a place for a harried mother with four children? <laughs> it's a fair question. And Reverend Jewell said, I thought about that a lot. I came to the conclusion that the principles behind the text were not help wanted, fishermen only. The point is that you and I were meant to be a part of the tremendous divine plan to bring light to a dark world, whoever and wherever we happen to be. The carpenter's invitation reads, follow me and I will make you build people. The accountant will hear it as, follow me and I will help I will make you help people know they count. The waitress will hear, follow me, and I will make you serve the spiritual hunger of people. The physician will hear, follow me, and I will make you a healer of people's souls. A beleaguered mom's call is, follow me, and I will make you a builder of children. You might spend a little time translating that into your own arena of work. No matter who we are, Jesus calls him to help him do his work wherever and with whomever we are. And that's true for our congregation as well. We don't have to be a megachurch. We don't have to be wealthy. We don't have to have the latest equipment. What we have to be is willing to let go of our fears and leave behind our if-onlys and our buts, and to be the church by following Jesus, just as it says in our church's new vision statement, which you'll find in your bulletin. You knew I was getting to this, right? So I invite you to turn to that now. It's just above where the outline for the service goes. And I wanted to read it once again. We did this last week, and I want to do it again. Let's share this. Following the example of Jesus Christ, El Segundo United Methodist Church seeks to be a community of faith that embodies the love of God. 
by reaching out and welcoming all, especially those on the margins of society, by creating a safe space in which all are supported on their faith journey, and by serving the needs of the community and beyond. Following the example of Jesus Christ, that is the first thing that we are about as a congregation. Our intention, our plan, our choice is not to lead, but to do what Simon, Peter, and Andrew, James, and John did, to follow Jesus, taking our direction from him and walking in his path. Furthermore, we intend to take his life's work as our example, as the pattern for our life together and for our mission and ministry. We're going to talk about this a lot this year, but this passage that we're reading today gives us some idea of what it might mean to do this when it tells us that Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. That last phrase probably gives us pause. It seems kind of impossible for us to be curing people, so it, it may help us to know that the word that we translate as curing can also mean serving, and in particular, tending to the needs of. While we may not have the power to cure disease, we can certainly serve those who are ill and attend to their needs and to the needs of our community. Likewise, in our interactions with others, we can teach them what it means to be loved and to love, and by our acts of kindness and caring, by standing up for what is right and just, and by giving and forgiving, we too can proclaim the good news of God's kingdom. We too can do this. Jesus also sets us an example when he called together a community of disciples to work with him. We also need to work together, not only to carry out our church's ministry and mission, but to help one another grow in faith and in love. We'll talk about this more in the coming weeks. So what does this ultimately mean for us as a congregation? At this point, I have no idea. <laughs> But I believe that this will become clear as we seek to live out this statement. I also believe that doing so will sometimes require us to discern whether or not a particular activity or attitude is in keeping with the message of Jesus. It is possible that we will have to leave a metaphorical boat or two behind along the way. If so, the story of the fisherman encourages us to let it go and to put our trust in the one was called us to a side into the great adventure that is Christian discipleship. In his book, an old book published in 1906, a book called The Quest for the Historical Jesus, Dr. Albert Schweitzer wrote this. He comes to us as one unknown, without a name, as of old by the lakeside, he came to those men who knew him not. He speaks to us the same word, follow thou me, and sets us to the tasks which he has to fulfill for our time. He commands, and to those who obey him, whether they be wise or simple, he will reveal himself in the toils, the conflicts, the sufferings which they will pass through in his fellowship. 
and as an ineffable mystery, they shall learn in their own experience who he is. May this be so for us. Amen and amen.